Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where I just watched a terrific documentary that is debuting next week as we record this. On November the 6th, there is a special screening and a Q&A panel at the TIFF Bell Lightbox down in Toronto, and then a world broadcast premiere on November the 11th, Remembrance Day. The film is entitled Cheating Hitler, Surviving the Holocaust. Wonderful film directed by Rebecca Snow, produced by Steve Gamester, both of whom we are very pleased to have with us via Skype from Toronto. Rebecca and Steve, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Good morning. So I, I'm very excited to talk about this film because, as I told you before we started to record, I turned this on last night. Uh, this is Tuesday, the 29th, and we're releasing this tomorrow, the 30th. But I got home from curling Monday night about 11 o'clock. It's about an hour and a half film. I said I would watch the first half, go to sleep, wake up, and then watch the rest. But I got to the halfway point of it, and I... I just felt very invested in the film and I, I didn't want to turn it off and I watched uh, through the whole, the, the whole thing. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited to, to get into it. But uh, Rebecca, we'll start with you uh, just broadly for, for people who may not have heard of the film yet. Uh, what can they expect when they turn it on? Well, this is um, this is a film about three uh, survivors who are now living in Canada. They're all originally from Eastern Europe, um, and it is uh, they were children during during the Holocaust um, from Poland, what's now Ukraine, but at, the point, at that point was it Eastern Poland, and from Lithuania. Um, and they all have uh, incredible stories of survival. And um, we took them. We sort of took we. We asked them to tell them our stories, so they gave us their testimonies, but we also took them on a sort of journey um, of investigation to, to answer questions that they've been um, the unanswered questions that they've had for years and years um, in, you know, in this case, 80 years um, and tried to help them answer those questions and come to some kind of um, resolution to do with that part of their story. Yeah, and Steve, how did you go about finding these three individuals? Because they're very powerful stories, and I, I know obviously the survivor community continues to get smaller with time. But how did you go about finding these individuals? Yeah, I mean that was really the most important uh, first step in all of this. Um, you know, as you mentioned, the, the number of survivors unfortunately gets smaller with each passing year. And, you know, our decision to focus on children really just came from the reality that it's, well, when we began 2018, but now 2019. So the survivors who were still alive were largely children during the war. Um, in terms of finding them, you know, one of the great things about exploring this history is that there's been so much work already done on it. Um, as you know, I mean, there are organizations and institutions that have devoted themselves to telling survivor stories and to keeping in touch with them. So places like March of the Living, which is an organ a worldwide organization, but one of the major organizations or one of the major offices is in Canada. And they're a group that takes students to Holocaust sites um, all across Europe, um, along with survivors. They can have a very immersive learning experience. We got in touch with Yad Vashem. We got in touch with the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. We reached out to a lot of existing organizations that already had connections. The Israeli Foundation was another big one. Um, these organizations have these existing connections with survivors and were able to put us in touch. So, you know, when you start something like this, you try and talk to as many people as you can. And, and some people say, no, they are not really interested in doing this. Um, we also knew, as Rebecca said, that we wanted to take these survivors on a journey to places of significance in Eastern Europe. So um, 
we looked for people who were willing to do that, who were healthy enough to travel, who were willing to travel with us. And I think, you know, we sort of narrowed it down to eight survivors who um, were interested and we interviewed eight survivors and then we focused on three who we took on journeys. Yeah, and the three that you see in the film, uh, you, you get a real sense of what their story is. And as you say, there's this, I'll use the word investigative part of it, where the research has been done to, to talk about their stories. And what's curious to me, um, and I'm wondering about sort of the filmatic, uh, if that's even a word, uh, part of this, where Rebecca, we see them on camera telling their stories but as we go through it, obviously research had been done in advance because as they're sitting there, they're getting this information. So I'm just curious about the timeline of how this all comes together. Like, what's the timeline of them being selected, doing the research, and then filming this? Mm-hmm. We, um, I joined the project, I guess, December last year, right, Steve? December? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, Steve, this Steve had been uh, working on this before that. Um, and then I came on as the director in December. Um, we, re- we we started looking into people and meeting people. And then I think I did my first interviews in February. Um, so I, what I did is we sat down uh, with each of the survivors. I mean, I think I, I think they were about four hour interviews. They were huge um and we interviewed them in studio which you see in the film um uh, at times and they gave us their story we had done a little bit of research into their background before that and that's i think you're probably referring to a moment when i reveal something very significant to one of our survivors helen in the interview yeah Yeah. um so yes we did a little bit of research beforehand and of course we didn't know how they were going to react and in the case of helen um it was an extraordinary moment, uh, pretty, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget it. And it's, um, you, you have very rare moments like that in your career as a documentarian when you, when you reveal something to someone, um, and they have that kind of reaction. Uh, and so then after that, after the sit down interviews, which were in studio, we, which we did, as I said, in the spring or sort of early or in the winter, um, we then did more research. We, we had a great researcher here in Toronto, Heather Coleman. And we hired people uh, as we needed them in, in Eastern Europe and in Israel. We had an amazing woman in Israel called Natasha Najinska. Did I pronounce that right, Steve? That's right, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, who actually made an incredible discovery about one of our survivors, Maxwell, which um, you, you'll see in the film. Um, he, uh, he has this story of um, hiding in the woods in the Ukraine, um, by himself after his uh, entire family had been taken off um, on trucks and um, killed at a, in a in a in a woods in a uh, outside of Buchach in what's now the Ukraine. Um, and Maxwell was hiding in the woods and he met a little boy and they lived together in the woods and they um, were involved in this very dramatic rescue of a baby um, whose whose mother had been killed in another massacre. Um, and anyway, so we Maxwell had very pressing questions about that um, event. And uh, Natasha did some research and, and came up with some incredible results, which you'll see in the film. Um, again, just moments where, you know, in my 20 years in documentaries uh, that you just you dream of moments like that, where you're going to, first of all, make some incredibly life changing discoveries for someone you know, apart from the documentary, but also to actually have it on film and see it happening. And, um, you know, Maxwell, I think, had uh, a genuine, you know, sort of resolution to his story, um, which was incredible to see and be able to capture on film. So, yeah, that, I mean, there's a lot of powerful moments in it, but that is in particular one of them. But I was watching it wondering, did you as the production crew know that, uh, they had found this result and were going to give it to him at the time because I mean the story is it's the that that she was able to identify this baby is remarkable uh, just it, it's really incredible so were were you there knowing that she was going to tell him this or was it just as much a surprise to you uh, in that moment where Maxwell finds out so amazingly, um, when we first interviewed Maxwell, we didn't know we were gonna we were gonna make all these discoveries. Um, 
after the interview with him when he told me in the interview about the extreme guilt that he feels over something that happened to him in the forests. Um, we, we knew we had to help try and help him answer some questions. So we did hire this researcher in Israel and, um, two days and we knew we wanted to fly him to Israel and uh, do some filming with him there anyway. And we were sort of hoping that this research would come through two days before I was leaving for Israel. Steve, Steve and I got an email from the researcher, didn't we, Steve saying, um, we, we've, you know, she's made this incredible discovery and uh, she has something to tell Maxwell. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, yeah, I think, you know, your original question, Sean, about how we do the research and Rebecca's hinted at it. You know, I think one of the things I'm most proud of about this film and the team that worked on this film, you know, I, I assume many of the listeners watch History Channel and watch history documentaries and you know, there's only so much you can do. You know, film is sort of a limited medium and the amount of time and funding you have to do original research is somewhat limited. You know, we really do rely on professional historians who have done most of the heavy lifting, who have spent hours and hours and weeks and weeks and months and months in archive to uncover these amazing things. And, you know, one thing that made this project special is we were really able to dive into original research ourselves. I mean, at the heart of this was finding the survivors who could tell us a story that illuminated the experience of the Holocaust for a film that would air on Remembrance Day. But there have been so many films made about the Holocaust. There have been so many books written about the Holocaust. I think at last counts, one historian told me there are 16,000 books listed at the Library of Congress about the Holocaust. Wow. So where do you begin and how do you even hope of breaking new ground, especially on the schedule of making a documentary film? So, you know, being able to have the three individuals who Rebecca did these incredibly thorough interviews with and to find out what stories or what unanswered questions they had from their past really gave us a focus. And in Maxwell's case, this mystery he had about um, uh, saving a baby in a forest in 1943 and then never seeing that baby again and not knowing if the baby had survived the war or was still alive today gave us a starting point. But, you know, when you choose to invest in hiring that research in Israel, um, we had no idea if that was going to pay off. And in the limited funds you have to make a documentary film, it's a risk. And sometimes the documentary gods smile upon you and sometimes they don't. And in this case, they did. It was really one of the most extraordinary days of my career, and I think Rebecca, you know, has already stated she felt the same way when we got that email, and it was a very extensive process. I mean, this this researcher, Natasha, she specializes in this type of thing. Um, she went back to the original sources in Poland and Ukraine and looked for every child that was born, you know, between 1939 or 1943, something, or I guess it started a little bit earlier, mm. in that area and tried to find out what happened to them. So it, 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 it was an exciting process. And the fact that it actually played out in our timeline was extraordinary. Mm. So, yes, when she tells Maxwell in that scene, when Natasha tells Maxwell that she has found the baby, that that was all totally. Yeah. I mean, he, he had no idea. Obviously, we walked into that scene. I knew, but I only knew from days, a couple days before. Wow. And even though you know, I mean, in that short timeline to only know a couple of days before, and I'm sure you had a sense of what his reaction would be, but it's so powerful to see it that, uh, you know, yeah. I'm sure everyone in that room was choking up at least a little bit. Oh, yeah. There were many yeah. moments like that. But that in particular, you know, I, I don't I didn't know how he was going to react, to be honest. Um, okay. It's, you know, he, it, it's, uh, it's 80 years of, um, f you know, emotion that he's had over this, over this. And he never thought he'd, he never thought he'd find that baby. Right. Um, you know, he said that to me. And so I had no idea because, you know, all of the, all of the feelings and all of the trauma that he was going through, he was, go he was going through as a 13 year old boy. And I don't know how an, how an 89 year old man's going to react. Um, but it was, it was incredible. Yeah. And I mean, the whole crew, there were many times on, on the shoot that the whole crew was um, having a hard time with everything, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, well, another 
it, another time where I'm sure it was difficult. It was it was difficult to to watch as well. Is the story of uh, Rose. Uh, it's, a, it's another one. And what's what I found really interesting in contrasting um, the, uh, the the stories is that we can talk about Helen too. But Rose really wanted to to seem like she shared the experience of going through her story with her granddaughters. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I found that really powerful. And I'm just curious, at what point in the process did she express this desire of, I don't want to just, it seemed it was driven by her, that I just I don't want to just tell my story. I want to share this with my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was from the very beginning. Not It wasn't just Rose. We were also interested in that. And so is History Channel. You know, I think one of the, Realities, of course, when you go into a project like this, is that you know that you are having the privilege of recording these stories um, for people who are in their 80s and 90s. And, you know, it's the reality that they won't be around forever. And that urgency that I think everyone feels to pass this history on, you know, all of the survivors express in their own way their fear about that you know once they're gone you know what does that mean in terms of public memory of the holocaust in the second world war um will holocaust denial go up you know will people um lose their sense and their appreciation of the of the of the lessons of the second world war and of of the genocide um during that war so you know rose had that i think larger motivation that drives so many of them. That's why they go to schools and and share their stories and relive this trauma, this unbelievable trauma. Rose lost her entire family, pretty much. Um, They relive this all the time for the benefit of passing on this history. And, you know, the granddaughters um, wanted to come. And, and, you know, we we were happy to have them along. Um, It was a way to... I hope engage younger viewers who see this film um, and 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 to provide that connection through through the generations. But then we contrast that with Helen, who her her grandson goes to to various places, and it's a line in the show early on that it sort of explains why it's the grandson through that she's vowed never to return to the sites. Mm-hmm. And I was really struck by that contrast between Helen and Rose and, and their different approaches to the sites themselves. And obviously neither one is right. Neither one is wrong in, in doing it right. Each person is going to experience this in their, in their own way. But for for Helen, what was the discussion around that with her not wanting to go and to vowing never to go and having her grandson go? Was was there a discussion? Or I'm just curious what the internal discussion there was uh, and, and contrasting that her experience with roses. Hmm. I mean, H- Helen. Um, Helen apparently with her mother um her mother who's who's long since passed away but um Helen and her mother had vowed never to ever set foot in Lithuania again I think um a lot of survivors from certain parts of Eastern Europe um just felt uh that that with Helen it was the participation of some Lithuanians uh in the whole in in the sort of early days of well in in you know, after the Nazi occupation, um, that she felt she just couldn't couldn't go back there again. Her grandson Andrew um, had been back to Lithuania once or twice and was very interested in going to Stutthof. Um, uh, he lives in England um, and he's uh, he's just a sort of closer geographically to the history and and also he's he's particularly interested in his grandmother's story. Um, so for him to be able to go and see original documents at the Stutthof camp um, uh, was 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 huge for him. And in terms of Rose, I mean, yes, going back to Sobibor, she um, she has always wanted to do that. She she's always wanted, sorry, to go back. She never she'd never been to Sobibor. I shouldn't say go back to Sobibor. It's where her mother and brother were killed. Um, and she uh, has always wanted to do that. She turned ninety a couple of days before we actually went to Sobibor. Um, so 
she and she was in in Poland with her granddaughters for that. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it was a huge, a huge thing for her. It was, I mean, I think all of us on the crew were just struck by how incredibly brave she was to do that, um, to be able to go to that site and um, say Kardash for her family, um, I think was huge for her. And it was obviously a very powerful moment for all of us and in the film, I think. And, and it's one of you those know, moments, sorry, go ahead, Steve. Well, I was just sort of one thing to add to um you know, Rebecca talking about how Helen had vowed never to go back to Lithuania, but Andrew was willing to go and is very interested in his family history. You know, we, we had this amazing cooperation, if I don't mind, if you don't mind me giving a shout out to the Kaunas Film Office. Kaunas, Lithuania is the second biggest city in Lithuania. Vilnius is the biggest one. Kaunas um, is where Helen is from. And, uh, you know, the film office there really helped us out. And one of the things they were able to do is they were able to allow us to film. We thought it would be interesting. I think it was Rebecca's idea to film at a school um, to just capture some B-roll of kids playing today. You know, there was that was always a theme of the film, you know, this contrasting the innocence of childhood and the horror of the Holocaust, you know, to get a sense of what it must have been like for these kids to essentially not have a childhood or have it cut short because of the realities of war. Anyways, we, the, the Countess film office managed to get us permission to film at a grade school, which is unbelievable because usually getting to film at a school is really, really hard. Um, but we got the permissions and, um, a local, journalists um, decided to come and write a story you know this Canadian film crew in Lithuania what are they doing here you know let's let's find out and the story was published online um, in a local Lithuanian newspaper and they interviewed Andrew this Helen's son and they interviewed Rebecca grandson yeah sorry um, grandson and you know I, I it's sad to say that the commentary, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the commentary that followed that story. You know, the, these, that anti-Semitism is one of those diseases in history that pops up, that never really goes away, that, that ebbs and flows, uh, depending on circumstances, depending on where you are. And I, you know, I often felt quite horrible for Andrew, you know, and, and admired him so much for, for coming back to this place for, for being friendly and open, knowing what had happened to his family in this country and having that response to him trying to tell this history. Um, it reminds you that, um, you know, the violence of the early to mid 20th century and the prejudices that led to that violence is still deeply rooted in the culture in a lot of these places. And we did encounter it. Um, and we admire and are grateful to Andrew for being brave enough to come back and tell that story with us. Yeah, and that's actually another thing I, I was going to ask about, because I, I know at the University of Ottawa, uh, Jan Grabowski, who's a Holocaust uh, historian, he's come up with, he's he's had a lot of uh, issues with Poland and the Polish government and the sort of official story of the Holocaust that the Polish government is putting forth and the idea that the, that the Polish citizens who participated weren't, weren't really doing it. It was all the Germans. And, and now there's this sort of back and forth within Poland. And uh, it's really a scary situation in terms of how history can be abused by governments trying to push very nationalist narratives. But you know, these are, this is going on in that part of the world as this almost, you know, I, I hate to say the word revisionist history of what the Holocaust was for some of these countries. So, yeah, there's, uh, I, I'm not surprised that you came up against it, but how did you try to combat that, particularly when you're in Poland and, and Lithuania and these places where the idea that the Holocaust either wasn't as bad as people say, or it wasn't real, or that people from those countries didn't participate. What is the, the process of being there and trying to get at the, the reality of these stories in environments where the locals, in a lot of cases, don't want to hear them? 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, one way to answer that, I think, um, you know, getting back to Maxwell's story in and around the Buchach area, which is now part of Ukraine and was part of Poland. You know, we teamed up with an organization. Rebecca, help me with the pronunciation of this, this organization. Yahad in Unum. Thank you. Which is um, based in France, and um, it's it was founded by a Catholic priest from the Vatican who studied anti-Semitism, whose name, for whatever reason, escapes me. But um, he founded this organization, and they're particularly interested in what's known as the Holocaust in bullets. So before the death camps were built, before gas chambers became the primary method of killing during the Holocaust, there were these killing squads, um, primarily that followed the Wehrmacht as they invaded um, uh, eastern Poland and then the Baltic countries and then into the Soviet Union, the Einsatzgruppen, that followed the frontline troops and, and committed these horrible mass shootings. Anyways, this organization, um, they they go to these towns in the former Soviet republics, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, and they search for killing sites. There are thousands of them. And they often encounter a lot of resistance from the locals who say this didn't happen or what are you talking about? There wasn't a mass killing here. So their entire methodology is to treat these places like crime scenes and to collect the physical evidence and the testimonies of the few remaining witnesses so that it's harder for these places to deny that these horrible crimes happen there. You know, often in a lot of these towns, there would be no monument, no acknowledgments, no marker whatsoever of the crimes that have been committed there. So I think, you know, it's, it is, and especially since the fall of the Soviet Union in the end of the Cold War, there has been more of an effort to confront um, the history in these places. Um, and it's an ongoing process. And we were more observers to that. I wouldn't say we were trying to confront it. You know, we were going to these places to tell the stories of our subjects. But we weren't, we didn't have a lot of interaction with um, locals who were resistant to what we were trying to do. Mm -hmm. That part too, where the, the Holocaust and bullets, that's something that you're right. It doesn't get talked about all that much. And I think one of the narratives that I'm pretty sure was presented in one of my courses, I, I hope it wasn't a museum, maybe it was a I want to say it was a course, was that um, while some Jews were shot in the Holocaust, it wasn't that many because it was so expensive and that the Germans didn't want to waste bullets when they could, when they had these, yeah, these gas chambers. Um, yeah. But then you go out in this film and you, it, it, I'm sure it's more difficult. Uh, obviously it's an hour and a half film, but if they, they go into the, the places where we know that these camps were and they just find shells. Yeah, it was, ex it was extraordinary. And um, when we went to Buchech in what's now Ukraine um, with this group you had in Unum, um, they, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. We, we had two days filming with them and we were, the reason we were there is because Maxwell's um, mother and sister who got on the truck that he did not get on um, because his mother told him not to, uh, were taken up to this hill just outside of town uh, in Buchech. It's called Feder Hill. And um, they were, Maxwell assumes they were shot there. And so uh, Yahadin and them took us up to the hill and they had already started researching this site as part of their process, you know, going across Eastern Europe and looking at some of these sites. And um, they uh, they we they had a, a metal detector and they literally we started filming. They put the metal detector on the ground and within seconds it was beeping and it was beeping ever. They were finding cartridges, German cartridges from the 40s um, uh, every two minutes or less. Um, oh. And then they and then they started finding uh, artifacts from um, presumably the victim. So the one one of the things that really um, struck me was this uh, little mirror. It was like a sort of compact, like a woman's um, like a mirror, a little makeup mirror, beautifully, beautifully engraved, just a really lovely piece. And it was just lying on the ground next to some cartridges. So 
I mean, side by side, you're finding the evidence of the perpetrators and the evidence of the victims still on the ground, just under the surface, all over this hill. Um, Patrice uh, from Yahad in Unum, Patrice ben- Ben-Simon, who's one of, who is the head of research there, he, he thinks that, um, that, that on this site there are 5,000, um, Jews who were killed here and, and their bodies would still be there. They can't dig up bodies because that's not part of what they do. And it's, it's, there's, um, rabbinical law. There's all sorts of things around actually bringing up human remains, but they do find artifacts and they talk to very fundamentally, they talk to eyewitnesses, as Steve mentioned, who, um, in our film, we, we were, we observed them talking to an eyewitness called, uh, Regina and she has lived in Buchach her entire life. And when she was a, you know, a, a 10 year old girl or, or sometime, sometime around then she was walking her cow and she witnessed um, a huge mass killing. And, and what really strikes you had in them about these, about these, a lot of these killings in these areas is that they were, they weren't, the, the, the Germans weren't trying to hide the, they weren't trying to hide it. A lot of the locals knew about it. It wasn't um, something that was done in secret. It was it was doing done right out there in front of people. And that's what makes it even. I mean, the whole the whole idea that six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. It, it's one of these things where when I'm talking to, to students, for instance, it's hard to wrap your head around it. And on top of that, the fact that yeah, they're not shy about talking about it. like they're they're not as you say they're not trying to hide it uh they're, they're just doing it and it's mm-hmm. it's one of the it's just so hard to, to process and that's why i think it's so useful when we get into the individual stories because the when it, when it's personalized like this you know i i hate to say that it's easy to to just sort of say well six million and, and but but the number's so big that it's hard to conceive of it but when you break it down and you hear an individual story, it's it's you can relate to the human to human. Obviously, I can't relate to what these three individuals went through, but the human emotions that go behind it and that personalization of it takes, I, I, I almost hesitate to say, but almost puts humanity into a very inhuman situation. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is exactly what I'm, it's exactly what we're trying to do with the film. I think, right, Steve, um, yeah. is give it also give them names, you know, and, and it's something that, um, Yad Vashem in, in Israel is doing is trying to give every single victim a name. Cause as you say, the 6 million is a very hard thing to get your head around or to sort of humanize in a way. But if you, once you start giving them names, um, and you start giving them their individual stories, which is what Rose can do for her mother and her brother and all her, cousins and everyone who was killed and and maxwell canoe for his mother and his little sister and his friend and yeah once you give them names and you you know the emotions tied to that i think it becomes a lot more real at the same time you know as much as the numbers are daunting and difficult to wrap your head around um they are important you know one of the things that we tried to do in this film um you know, there are sort of infographics that appear on screen um, when we're filming at a particular location. And and a lot of them are numbers. They, so, for instance, um, Buchach, which is this city that we keep talking about, which uh, was in eastern Poland and is now part of the Ukraine. Before World War II, there were about 24,000 people living there. Um, Interestingly enough, kind of evenly split, about 8,000 Jews, 8,000 Poles, and 8,000 Ukrainians. Um, of the 8,000 Jews of Buchach who were living there in 1940, only 100 survived. And Maxwell is one of those 100. Um, Lublin, um, quite a you know fair-sized city in Poland today, um, I think, what was it, Rebecca, about 42,000 was the Jewish population before yeah. the war. Yeah. Um, less than 1% survival rate. So it's, it's you know, I think one of the things that really strikes you when you go and you tell the story of the Holocaust in the East is how low the survival rate was. I think Lithuania, in fact, had the lowest survival rate of, of, of all Jews. Entire communities and their families um, erased with only a few survivors like Maxwell, Helen, and Rose left to tell 
those stories. So, so while, yes, absolutely, we wanted to tell the story of individuals, it's important not to lose sight of these numbers. And, and one of the other really disturbing things is how quickly um, these, these killings happened. You know, I, I think, you know, as part of the research, um, there's a fantastic book um, called um, Why Explaining the Holocaust um, by a historian named Peter Hayes, which I read as part of the research for this film. You know, and he points out that more than 50 percent of the killing in the Holocaust happens in about a 12 month period. You know, there's that period in sort of late 1941 through 1942 where the numbers are astonishing and, and disturbing and upsetting. And I think we can't lose sight of that, that, you know, we saw that in Rwanda where where mass killing and genocide can happen in a disturbingly condensed amount of time. Um, and that's one of the great lessons, I think, of the Holocaust. And, you, and certainly when uh, when Rose uh, gets to the site and the shoes, there, there's a scene where she, you see the shoes and, and I believe it's presented to 18,000 people in one day. Um, yeah, that was, I think that was, that was the, at Majdanek, uh, there was a, a day, two, a two day operation called Operation Antifest, um in 1943 in November. And the 18,000 in one day is, is day one of Antifest and, I believe it's the the largest single day killing by Nazis of Jews during the Holocaust. Um, so yeah, exactly. The numbers are. Mm-hmm. And and Rose went in and saw. Uh, yeah, Rose walked into a the room in Majdanek. They have um, a barrack full of shoes of, of victims of, from Majdanek, and and Rose and her granddaughters went in and reacted to that. Mm. Yeah, and and it's 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 definitely a powerful moment uh, in the film, but. I, within that too, we, we we sort of alluded to it, but there's the like you said, the footage from the school. There's animation in it. There's this interesting counter. And, and Rebecca, I'm curious, as the director, you have, as we talked about, sort of the horror of the Holocaust being told, but then you also have these moments that, just from a a visual perspective, are very youthful and very innocent that are contrasted with that. I'm just curious, from a a director's perspective, how was that decision made, and and how do you walk that fine line in telling the story that is so terrible and the reality of it versus these images that project an an innocence and that youthful spirit? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's we, we tried to, throughout the film, sort of hark back to the whole childhood um, element of it, because obviously we're looking at, at people who are in their, their, their final years, you know, they're in their, 80, their late 80s, some, some of them 90s. Um, and they're talking about when they were kids, and you've got to sort of keep remembering that they were kids at the time, um, which also just brings back the whole horrificness of, of, of the Holocaust, that it was, it was, you know, directed at children as well. Um, and so many of their little siblings didn't survive. The, these, a lot of these, um, these survivors all, well, some of them survived. Helen in particular survived because she looked older than she was. She was, um, she was just on the cusp, right? Um, so, uh, in terms of the visual elements, um, and also, uh, so the visual elements, you know, the animation that you mentioned, we, we thought that was a great way of, um, you know, we needed to be able to visualize the moment, the moments, the dramatic moments that they were telling us about, um, you know, in Helen's case, when her brother was taken from her or in, in Rose's case, when her her mother, you know, told her to run moments like that, where you sort of need something visual to help um, understand what happened and, and to help um, drive the, the story. Um, so the animation, we had some great um, animators here in Toronto and we wanted to use sort of childlike drawings almost. Um, so the, that's where the line drawing came in. Um, and then in other ways in the film, you know, this, the music, um, we decided to use sort of um, for, for all three of them, different instrumentation, which had sort of childlike elements. You know, in one case, there's a girl humming. In another case, there's sort of a music box sound um, in Maxwell's story. Um, and I think that really... Uh, sort of works quite well in terms of trying to hark back to the childhood. Um, and then, as you say, the the children in the school, that kind of 
you know, the slow motion kids playing, kids playing hopscotch. Rose talks about hopscotch. Helen talked about hopscotch. They both mentioned that they played yeah. hopscotch. Helen, Helen in the ghetto, Rose, you know, on the streets before before the Nazi uh, occupation. So trying to kind of get back to those those uh, moments of childhood is important, I think. Yeah, and just I can't remember which one of it says that when when they were playing hopscotch as a kid that uh, her mother would get upset because she would she was going through her shoes too fast, yeah, right? Right. Like, like right. It, yeah, it really. Yeah, you see these these people who, as you say, are, are seniors and in their eighties, nineties, but they when when she tells that story, she she almost you can see the the glint in her eye that she's a kid yeah. again, right? And she remembers yeah. that. Um, so w- with that, I, and I think the other thing with that is when you think of everything that happens that that these people who you see as older that they had that strength at the time and each one of them has these pivot points almost in their stories where they have to do something uh, whether it's when they're separated from their family or, or just to survive that it's really hard to believe, and I don't mean this in a sense that I don't believe them, but just that the, the strength and the courage that it takes for children to be able to, to do what they had to do. And I agree that having the line drawings and the, the images there really uh, is, is a nice way to remember that these were, these are kids uh, mm-hmm. who are doing these remarkable, remarkable acts. And it's, I mean, I think it happens to everybody. I think uh, it's uh, Helen's grandson says in in the film at one point that I, I don't think I could have done that. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, from a human level, I, I think that is, you know, through the process of being part of this film, it's the question that keeps popping into your mind. How how could you possibly have had the strength to do that, to survive, mm-hmm. you know, you, you just time and time again, you think that when you're talking to these people and you're learning more and more about their stories, the, the strength of their parents, the strength of, of them to, to be able to, you know, when you think again of a case of, of Maxwell, who I guess Rebecca, would he have been 12? He was 12 when he first went, 12 when he first went into the woods. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, here's a 12 year old kid whose whose mother, father, um, grandparents, little siblings and his little sister have all been murdered. And he has the strength to run into a forest, dig himself a shelter, um, gather his own food um, to, you know, to, to survive. I mean, it really it speaks to that human capacity to survive but i don't think everyone has that you know i do think there is something exceptional about these three individuals where they through a combination of their own strength and let's face it luck you know like it's i don't know what you call it luck fate whatever your belief system is but you know um ellie rubenstein who's uh who's um a toronto rabbi who was who's who, who founded the first synagogue of Holocaust survivors in Toronto and was an advisor to the film said to us early on in this process that in order to survive the Holocaust, you had to have a thousand doors open for you at exactly the right time. So there is an element of luck involved in this too. And I think that also leads to a sense of guilt in many of these survivors. You know, survivor guilt is a, is a real thing. You know, you, despite your heroics, despite your strength, all of them do have this, why me? Why did I survive when all my classmates and all my family didn't? Um, it's a very difficult thing, um, I would imagine. I mean, certainly my own experience doesn't come anywhere close to this, and most of it doesn't. But uh, um, that sense of survival and, and that ability to survive is extraordinary. Well, that's why I would summarize this film in a maybe in a not the most accurate way but i i watched it and at the end of it i i felt almost hopeful and that not only are these people's stories now 
hear and they can be told and spread widely, but they got to share these experiences with their families, right? Each one of them we see at least one of their family members as, as part of the process. And knowing that their stories will continue to be told, but also seeing the strength that human beings do have. And the, these are obviously exceptional people, but you know, I, I came out of the film not only knowing more about the Holocaust, but also feeling feeling hopeful for the future. And, and I don't know if that's what you were necessarily going for, but th that's kind of how, how I reacted to it. And so I'm, I'm curious if each of you have had similar reactions from other people who've seen it or, or even what your sense of the film is. Mm, I'm glad I'm glad that's the feeling you came out of it. I, I mean, I think um, definitely uh, in terms of each of their stories, you know, there's there is um, out of all of this sort of darkness and tragedy and, and, and devastation that that they've been through and the, the trauma that they've dealt with. I think we um, hopefully through the film, through the investigations and through, you know, in Helen's case, there was a she met someone very significant um, that she's always been wondering about what happened to them. You know, in Maxwell's case, um, there was obviously a couple of reunions there where, some, uh, you know, he was alleviated of this of this huge guilt that he felt over something that happened in the woods and um, always wondered about the baby. And then with Rose, she she finally got to go to Sobibor and, and say Kardash with her granddaughters and and, um, you know, to where her mother died. Um, so I think in that sense, there's some hope. And there's some sort of resolution in a sense for them somehow. Um, so that that's, I think, you know, to me, that was to me being able to see them, see them go through this process and to be able to sort of um, give them that in, 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 the, in the terms of the research, you know, our amazing researchers who found out all this stuff and we were able to do these things for these people in this film. Um, that for me was uh, was an incredible gift to them but also just for me to, to experience and i hope the viewer too yeah i mean i you know hope is um you know tends to go up and down at times i mean you know i i the 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 these three survivors were incredibly inspirational and i think you know they give you hope for and, and you know they they had people who helped them you know rose survived um, because of a Polish family that took her in. Uh, Maxwell had a, a local farmer who helps him survive. Um, so there are, you know, amongst the darkness and the people who were committing horrible acts, there were individuals who were brave enough to to stand up to the Nazis, to stand up to hate and to and to try and stop it. Um, you know, I. At the same time, you know, I do fear for when the survivors are no longer with us. I fear in general that as people who have direct experience of the horrors of the Second World War um, and before that, the Great Depression and the First World War, you know, as those people disappear um, from society and without that direct connection I fear a little bit, you know, all the institutions that have that were established at the end of the Second World War, the United Nations, the IMF, um, you know, this sort of world international order was built in the spirit of this stuff not happening again. And of course, these are the same institutions that seem to be under threat now, like never before since the end of the Second World War. So I, you know, through the process of making this film, there was this unsettled feeling I had about what happens to our world when we no longer have this living link to the event that really kind of galvanized the world to try and make sure it doesn't happen again. I hate to end on an unhopeful. <laughs> No, I, no, I, I think that it's it's a it's a fair, very fair point, and yeah, we the, it's like with anything, right? The further we get away from it, the harder it is for people to remember it, and that's why films like this, I, I think, are so important. And that not only uh, is the story told, but also that younger generation that you see in the film, that that 
it, it persists in that way. And a, a film like this, yeah, I, I feel like I've been gushing for the past hour, but uh, stuff like this that is not only really informative, but also it, it, it's powerful. And, and as I said, you know, my, my plan was to watch 45 minutes, go to bed. I couldn't stop it. Like I couldn't stop watching it. I had to, I had to watch it right through. So hopefully that it stuff like this allows these stories to continue to be told. And that when we do get to the point where there are no survivors left, that they're not forgotten. Yeah. Yes. Certainly share that sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so the film, uh, cheating Hitler surviving the Holocaust, I, I have to say when they first emailed me about the film and, uh, the subject line just said cheating Hitler, I was uh, a little confused about it, but, uh, the, the title that comes from something one of the survivors says, I, I won't spoil that moment because yeah. it's actually one of my favorite moments in the film. Uh, but that's where the, the title comes from. And it is, having a special screening next week, if you're listening to this when we release it, on November the 6th at the Tiff Bell Lightbox Theater, which is in downtown Toronto. It's presented by the Newberger Holocaust Education Center, and both Steve and Rebecca will be there along with the three survivors featured in the film, and there will be a talk back after the screening. So that'll be, uh, I'm sure that'll be a a very... uh, interesting event and i'm sure the the crowd that there will love talking to not only the two of you but three survivors as well yeah well they'll be the main attraction and i should i should say you know we were we had as of last week that event was sold out but they've moved it to the bigger theater the biggest theater at the bell tiff light box which of course is where the toronto film festival is so a really amazing facility so um, more tickets were just released today. So okay. if you Google cheating Hitler November 6th screening, um, it'll come up. And um, yeah, please come down if if, uh, if you're in the Toronto area. Um, you know, meeting Rose, Maxwell and Helen is a special experience. Yeah, unforgettable. Yeah. So if you're not in the GTA, though, uh, the World Broadcast premiere is on the history channel on remembrance day they have not given me times though do you get do you have times for 9 p.m okay 9 p.m on remembrance day world broadcast premiere on history watch it live for the ratings obviously but if you can't watch it live dvr it it's well worth your time to watch this film so definitely check it out there on remembrance day Uh, Rebecca and Steve, thank you so much for the time today. Congratulations on a wonderful film and very much looking forward to, uh, to, I'm going to watch it again. So, uh, (laughs) uh, so, uh, thank you very much for spending the time with me this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. If you have any questions or comments for the show, you can find us at historyslam at gmail.com. I am at Dr. Shawnee Fever on Twitter. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your show. Give us the likes, ratings, all that fun stuff to keep the show going. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.